Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan, and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Andy Galpin. A professor of kinesiology at California State University, Fullerton, Dr. Galpin is one of the leading minds in sports science and works at the cutting edge of research into human performance, with his name on over 100 peer-reviewed publications and presentations. Dr. Galpin is the founder and director of the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Lab at his university, and is also the director of the Center for Sport Performance there. He is a co-founder of multiple private companies, including Absolute Rest, Biomolecular Athlete, and Rapid Health and Performance. Not to mention the dozens of elite athletes that he has worked with, among them Olympic gold medalists, world champions in boxing and MMA, and NBA and NFL All-Stars. In today's episode, Dr. Galpin talks about the effect of sleep on physical performance. We delve into the strategies and methods to optimize sleep, the reliability and utility of wearables, the most important metrics of health, and what VO2 max is, why it's such an important indicator of health, and how we can improve it. We close with a broader discussion on the state of innovation and the pace of scientific research in the realm of human performance. We talk about what the limit of elite human performance might be, and what Dr. Galpin would say to athletes who find themselves absconding from personal responsibility for their performance because of the mountains of health data now available to us. Dr. Andy Galpin, thank you very much for coming out to Bramcast. My pleasure to be here. Great. In your experience, what is the most, what do most people get wrong when it comes to optimizing sport performance, sport health, uh, whether that be the biggest misconception or just things people are doing plain wrong? Uh, hard to answer questions like that. It's, it's very individualized. Um, I certainly like to spend more time kind of talking about positive rather than, you know, negative. Um, I mean, I guess we could take this in a number of different directions. Um, one of them that jumps out immediately is I think underappreciating the role of sleep. And we spend a lot of time with high precision training and supplementation and uh, technique and memorizing plays and, and whatever this stuff is. But yet we don't, if we look at the percentage of explanatory of sport performance, they don't realize that oftentimes sleep can outweigh all that. But yet we just, say, hey, sleep more, sleep more, sleep more. And we don't take any level of precision or accuracy with that. And if you look at um, any of the research on rugby players, the Olympic Games, professional swimming, um, F1 and race car driving, uh, the NHL, the NBA here in the States, the NFL, et cetera, um, you will see extensive research on sleep can outpredict almost any other variable for who's going to win and lose games. Um, you're talking about percentage points differences in things like the Olympics. And if you get any sport coach and said, hey, we can improve your percentage by 2% and via training or supplement, everyone would line up for it. But yet, again, we hear sleep and we're just like, yeah, 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 sleep, of course. We tell everyone to sleep more, sleep more, sleep more. But why are we not taking it with the same rigor and precision that we are with our training? Why do we have spreadsheets and data and tracking and argument? Like, we just say sleep more, sleep more, sleep more. Like, there, there's nothing there. So um, that is one of that is oftentimes top of mind to me, that it's, it's just such an incredibly easy way to enhance sport performance and health. Um, and we... We acknowledge it. We're like, yeah, 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 sleep. Great. But like, then we don't really do anything about it. So what are the steps that the average person could take to optimize sleep? Uh, whether that be, you know, restricting caffeine intake, blue light, what can we do? Yeah, blue light's generally super overrated. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it can be, sure, like don't have a bunch of light 
shining in your face an hour before bed and all that, but that's not really going to move the needle for that many people. Um, what you want to think about is a handful of categories. Um, for example, you want to think about your sleep uh, timing, which is not necessarily just about the hours here, but it is when are you sleeping? And here's an example. We know that people have a advantage in terms of sport performance when they compete in their own local circadian timing. And now what I'm not talking about here is, is time zone change. So the, the same thing happens, by the way, for business, if you're not an athlete. It's the same thing. Like you want to be effective across different time zones. People always think, okay, great. I don't want to change two or three time zones. That's not the issue. It's the issue is, are you competing within your same local window? So let's just say you're used to competing at 11 a.m. in your window and you go three time zones to the right. Okay. Well, if that game, three time zones to the right, is still happening at 11 a.m., your local time, and you stay on local time, you don't have any effect of the jet lag. You just sat on a plane for two hours. It's not that big a deal, right? And so vice versa, if you're playing a home game, still in a home game, but instead of playing 11 a.m., you now play a game in the evening. It's just like jet lag. You've done the same thing to yourself. You've moved four or five hours. It is the same exact thing. So the issue is not the plane ride. It is the timing. So step number one is just paying attention to the actual timing. What rhythm is your body on. And, and then again, the same thing can be applied to work if, if you're moving those situations. So making sure you're staying whenever you can within that own endogenous rhythm it is a huge benefit. So that's timing. The second big ones are, of course, duration. That's what everyone thinks about. How much do I sleep and how many how much time do I get? And then the third big one is the quality of that sleep. And, and there's a lot of ways we can go within all of those. And so what you mentioned are a couple of tactics caffeine and light and things like that. But those only matter when you get the level of precision. So in other words, what is affecting your timing? What is affecting your duration? What is affecting your quality? And you you can start with those things, but you know, yeah, of course, very few people are going to have success having caffeine late in the day with their sleep. Um, but if your issue is nothing to do with falling asleep, then or quality of your sleep, then that's not really going to be that big of a deal. There are other things that, again, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it can be way simpler than that. Just like paying attention to the the, the window that you're getting up and, and going to sleep all day can handle a lot of it when you don't have to worry about things like getting filters and stuff because they're just you're, you're playing marginally beneficial games typically. I'd like to get back to that, to like the playing marginally beneficial things because it seems that in every aspect of sports performance, people uh, focus on the marginally um, beneficial rather than the big things. But before that, um, sleep trackers, how much faith should we be giving to them? Are they getting better or sh should we literally just put it down to the duration as opposed to ratios and REM sleep, deep sleep, so on? Yeah, a handful of things to say about that. It depends on how you're using it. There are excellent data on both sides suggesting that um, as a adherence tool, they can be wonderful. Um, people tend to make better decisions when they know they're being watched. Right. So if you know you're going to look at that thing in the morning, or especially if you have a coach looking at it, you're going to make better decisions. So throw accuracy out the window. I don't care. Simple fact, you're going to make better decisions. That is going to help. Number two, it can be a calibration tool. I think I sleep pretty well. I think I sleep pretty well. And holy cow, I'm really getting five hours of sleep per night. Okay. So really being calibrated to what you're at. Now, in terms of accuracy, um, they are fairly accurate and they're going to get better. So I don't really concern myself with accuracy because 
who cares? Give it a year, give it six months. Like it, it's going to get better, right? Um, duration is great for the most part. The Their ability to understand when you are um, asleep is awesome. When you're awake is a problem, but it's pretty close, right? Sleep staging in general, I think, is entirely fruitless. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's relevant at all for a number of reasons, and I don't think you should pay any attention at all to how much time you're spending in deep sleep or REM sleep or anything like that. Um, number one, they're definitely not accurate for those at all, and they're not even reliable, meaning they're not going to give you the same data after them. But the bigger issue is more than that. Let's just say they are. Let's say that they're 99% accurate according to the gold standard, what's called polysomnography, so PSG. Why do you think that you're supposed to have a certain amount of deep sleep? Why do you think you're supposed to have a certain amount of REM sleep? Wh who said that? Where does that come from? It's completely made up, basically, right? So, oh, you should have an hour of deep sleep a night. Why? How do you know you should have an hour of deep sleep? Did you do the same thing every single day? Do you have the same mental demands, physical demands? Is your brain going through the same activity? No, the answer is no, 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 no. So think about it this way. See, like, would you have the same nutrition program every single day, regardless of what you did physical activity-wise? No, sir. Would you have the same training when you have different goals? You want to get stronger, faster, leaner? Nope. Why would you think your brain needs to go through the same stages for sleep then? It absolutely doesn't. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's what I mean when people are just like, oh yeah, sleep more, sleep more, sleep more. But we don't have the same rigor that we have with the other aspects, like, right? You would never do the same warm-up. You would never you would expect different amounts of physical fatigue based on different amounts of physical exertion. But with sleep, we're just like, oh, I should be sleeping 60 minutes of deep sleep. Why? According to what? Um, those are standards that are that have been made up almost four decades ago, and they change. They just kind of move them. In addition to that, what qualifies as deep sleep is an arbitrary score. And so they're getting a little bit technically here. Again, they're based on polysomnography. Polysomnography uses these 30-second epochs, so these time domains. And what they say is like, okay, a, a person goes in and, and qualifies and says, eh, that counts, eh, that counts. So it's very arbitrary, so very subjective. And then scientists at some point, you know, 20 years ago said, oh, okay, actually there's four sleep stages, now there's three, and they sort of just change the cutoff criteria. So that they're not really actually things. There is no like, you're in deep sleep or you're not in deep sleep. That's not a, it's not a physiological thing. It's a human construct, right? And so that doesn't make a ton of sense on a very big global scale, fine. But for you as the individual, it doesn't make much sense whatsoever. And so looking at that as your primary metric of like, oh, I'm not sleeping well, or because this score on this wearable that we know is not accurate is now basically on a subjective thing, which we now know is supposed to change every day anyways. And now you're getting freaked out about it. The problem is there is a thing called orthosomnia, which is wearable induced insomnia. And so this is a real thing, right? You can create insomnia, clinical insomnia, from being so worried about the score on your wearable. And, and so now we're, we're doing that based on the three things I just said before, right? And so this is, this is a real problem. Um, you, you have questionable utility there. And now you're actually talking about, and it doesn't happen that often, but it happens enough to where some people can actually induce and cause, again, clinical sleep disorders in which they did not have because they're having their anxiety around worrying about it Totally arbitrary score, right? Um, it, it would it would be akin to you, you know, developing any other form of mental health issue based upon how many likes you have, right? We're like, what does that even? It doesn't matter. Like, what? Blah 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 blah, right? Like, th this is not this is not a great thing. So, perhaps a, a bit of a cursed example there, but you get my point here. So those those are just not things we need to be worrying about. Um, if we're using it for the simple way of again accountability, great.
if you're using it for just rough ideas of how much you are asleep and are you consistent, right? So I, I could tell you a hundred examples of, of athletes that I've coached where you're like, oh yeah, I bet a coach, I was in bed. I was in bed. And it's like, I can see you didn't go to bed till four. Like I, I, I can see it. Like, like you, you were ah crap. Like, okay. Yeah. I was up to whatever. Um, so things like that are great use cases of it. So I, I really want to be clear. I'm not against technology. We use them extensively, but you get the point here. We have to be really paying attention to what we're using it for. Absolutely. You put it that way, then the examples really cast light on it. Um, back to like the marginal improvements that people like can sometimes get obsessed with making. We're in an age now where there's data on everything. I mean, you got everyone has access to their, well, with a wearable, um, resting heart rate, variability. You got um, most people can get their VO2 max done, their blood's done. Then you got the traditional 5K time, max lifts. What are the most important metrics for, um, you know, what, and if they're different for the average person, you know, athlete looking to excel in sports versus the top level elite athlete? What are the most important metrics? Well, the only real functional difference there at the highest level is specificity, right? And so if you, we, we generally call these KPIs, key performance indicators, right? Really easy example. Um, if you're dealing with a major league baseball player, all right. Well, I need to know if you can hit a ball. How hard can you throw a baseball? Like those are going to be key performance indicators, right? And if you're not playing baseball player, you don't care about that at all, right? It's totally irrelevant how fast you can throw a baseball. Like irrelevant, right? I don't care um, really what the 40-yard dash time is on a major league baseball pitcher. It's just not relevant, right? Okay, great. So there's just tiny specificity there. But if you're just like zooming out and saying physiologically, how do we determine high functioning, high quality physiologically? Between those three groups you mentioned, it's the same, right? It is the same because you need to get your physiology into a position where it can perform at its absolute highest. And how you choose to use that physiology is specificity. That comes later. I don't care about that. That is the sport coach's job, right? That is the swing coach's job. That is the throwing coach's job, right? My job is to say, how do we get your, again, physiology at its highest function? And it's the same if you want to live as long as possible, if you want to be the most productive um, worker possible, the best parent, the best spouse, the best friend, the live, that's the same, right? And, and so when you start looking at these things, there's not that many to cover. We don't have time to get into all of them. But if you want to just start dicing up things like, well, do you want to hedge towards living longest? Do you want to hedge towards reducing chances of injury? Um, no, those are slightly different answers. Uh, just a really easy example there. Let's take a VO2 max or maximal aerobic capacity. Okay, not super relevant to determining Major League Baseball players' performance. That's not going to tell my PGA golfer if he's going to win the Masters if his VO2 max is a little bit higher. There's a baseline, right? And we can't go below that. That's going to be a problem. But once we get to a certain level, going above that doesn't really like accelerate performance, right? Um, depending on the sport, you're somewhere in the like for a male, 50 to 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute. In most anaerobic sports, again, um, golf, for example, if you go from a VO2 max of 60 to 70, you ain't playing any better in your golf. Like that's not helping. But if you go from 30 to 40, that probably helps because you're so unfit, you can't recover, you can't go through baseline stuff, right? So there's a curve there, right? Diminishing returns. Now, you can do the same thing for the marathon, by the way. Um, marathon performance is predicted physically, just the physical side of it, by three main categories, running efficiency, lactate threshold, and VO2 max. 
So the point is, VO2 max clearly matters, but it is still a, a diminishing returns there. Not diminishing, well, it is diminishing returns, as well as just tapering a benefit, right? Like, okay, at some point, that's not the only thing that matters. If you contrast that to things like, well, how long are you going to be alive? Your risk of mortality. VO2 max is oftentimes the single highest predictor that you can measure of almost anything else. And we're talking about chronic kidney disease, hypertension, blood high blood pressure, cholesterol levels, um, atrial fibrillation, like all kinds of other uh, more classic clinical diagnostic tests. They're all important for sure. But VO2 max tends to smash them. So you're looking at hazard ratios um, of like, if you have diabetes or something, it might increase your risk of death by 40%. Like not good, right? When you talk about like the highest fit people from the lowest fit people, now you're talking like 400%. Like it's just, just it's, it's insanely impressive how important VO2 max is to just predicting, you know, long-term mortality. So when you think about it that way, you're like, oh, okay, great. And what's different about here than the sports situation is there's no diminishing returns. There's only continued protection. The higher that number goes, the more protective, period. It doesn't taper. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't go, oh, okay, actually, most fit people are actually more risk. It is just a straight line. It just keeps going and going and going. And physical strength has a similar story, whether you're looking about lower strength, whether you're looking about grip strength or lower body strength, grip strength. It's the same thing. It's massively uh, protective for how long you're going to live, and it is a linear increase, right? Now, to pin this one, we're certainly not talking about an extremist with leg strength. So if you can squat 300 kilos and you go to 350 kilos, that's probably not making you live like any longer, right? There's a point where like that doesn't matter anymore. But the general point is things like grip strength and basic leg strength in most people, stronger is only going to be better. You're going to live longer the stronger you can get those things. So in the similar sport example, uh, I, I can't promise my NFL quarterback that taking him from 300 to 350 kilos in his back squat is going to make him play football any better. But I can certainly tell him if he squats 100 kilos, that's not going to be strong enough. So you, you get the idea. So that's kind of how I would differentiate those those different sets of goals. Of course. Maybe talk to me about VO2 max um, because like I said, it does seem that if you live in a major city or town, you can get this measurement done. You gave the metric of between 50 and 60. Um, why does it, why is it such a big indicator of that, of health span, you know, health, um, and how, what can we do to improve it? Why is it such a big indicator? Um, it, it takes into both central and peripheral health, meaning your cardiovascular system per se, your actual heart, and your lung function, right? How well can you breathe in and and bring in rather oxygen? So if your lungs are dysfunctional, if your um, if your intercostal muscles or your diaphragm are dysfunctional, and you can't breathe well, this is central to everything, right? So if you can't breathe well, you're gonna have problems across the board. And then can you get that blood out into the tissue? That's your heart, right? So if you have any lung or lung musculature or actual heart issues, that's gonna show up. Second half of that is peripheral, meaning how you actually get nutrients and oxygen into tissue, your muscles, your organs, whatever, and then how do you get waste products out? So it's a beautiful metric because it accounts for both sides of that equation. And again, if you have an issue getting in nutrients in and out, it doesn't matter about exercise performance, but you're not going to be able to get waste products and waste and fuel or fuse waste products out fuel in, that's going to be a problem for your organs, right? So your liver is not going to be happy. Your kidneys are not going to be happy, et cetera, et cetera, right? 
So it is, it is taking account the entire system. Rather than, say, a blood test for kidney health, it's only considering the kidney, right? And that's great. Uh, something like blood cholesterol is really only going to affect the heart. Great. So they're important. Very big deal, but, you know, they're, they're a little bit localized there. Second thing is, more importantly here, it's a direct test of functionality. So blood pressure is important, but it's only testing, again, that one little issue, right? How much pressure, and, and that's a good indicator of health for sure, but it's not testing functionality. Because we're measuring capacity and functionality, then we're seeing like, okay, when push comes to shove, how well does this thing work? Easy example of this is, think about uh, what's called the line of independence. So at about 18 milliliters per kilogram per minute for men and about 16 milliliters per kilogram per minute for women. Those are generally what we consider to be the line of independence. So if you fall below that, you have a hard time living by yourself, being independent. And the reason is basic activities of daily living, that's what they're called. So ADLs, activities of daily living, walking, going to the toilet, you know, making yourself tea, like all that stuff, right? That becomes so physically demanding because those basic activities themselves require, you know, 12, 14 milliliters per kilogram per minute. You're now basically almost running a VO2 max test every time you go to the bathroom, every time you take a shower. And so living by yourself is really difficult because you can imagine, you know, a normal person, a way to do a VO2 max test um, without a uh, machine is to go run um, <clears throat> a mile and a half as fast as you can. Or another way, here's an easy way to do it. Cooper's test, 12 minute test. Run 12 minutes as hard as you possibly can. Measure how much time, how far you covered in that 12 minutes. And then you can plug that into an equation, get an estimate, right? That's going to take you to a VO2 max. So effectively, imagine the feeling after running 12 minutes as hard as you possibly can. That's the feeling you're getting, you know, taking the trash out. So you end up like, you're like, I can't do this by myself. No way. And if any little thing happens, you get tired, you get a cold, you sleep bad, like you're done. Like you just can't you know, feed yourself and bathe yourself and stuff like that. Um, so that's what the line of independence really refers to. And it's not a perfect scale, but it's really, really close, right? And so if your VO2 max is 22, um, you have no room for error here. And everything feels really, really hard throughout the day. So you end up being very inactive and that kind of circle leads to a bad circle. Uh, and so because you're inactive, that VO2 max then goes down. Um, so that's generally why it's a problem. Now, what to do about it? is the inverse. Number one, start as high as possible. Number two, don't let it drop, right? So in, you know, as soon as you can, which the best day to start a new program is yesterday. Second best day is today. So doesn't matter if you're 60 or 20 or 15, whatever, to start today, tomorrow, whenever you can. Keep that thing as high as you can and just don't let it go away. So don't be inactive. Don't use the, well, I used to, you know, be in sport when I was in school. Uh, you know, but it wasn't that long ago. It's only 10 years ago. Like, okay, well, that's all gone. Like, goodbye. Starting them. In terms of physical tactics, um, you really don't need to make it any more complicated than challenging the heart. If you're doing something that challenges your heart rate, then you're going to be working on your heart rate. And it's, it's going to be close enough. Um, if you want really specifics, we can. But the, the honest reality it is you can get this done so many different ways. The, the phrase we'll typically say here is the methods are many and the concepts are few. So hit these same couple of concepts and then the methods are just infinite. A way like if you want to row, you want to swim, you want to run, you want to drag a sled, you want to go to a, um, a class at a gym. That's great. Group activity class. You want to train by yourself. Awesome. You want to lift weights with it. Great. You want to do, you know, fitness. It doesn't like all those can improve your go to max. 
Are you challenging your heart consistently? Well, then great. You're probably going to get there. Got it. So just get going. Yeah. Let's get going on something. A couple different questions now. You're a man of fierce knowledge on the topic of sports science, kinesiology, so on and so forth. But what's the biggest open question in the academic field? What don't we know and what are um, professionals like yourself, what do you hope to find out? What's the big open question in the next 10 years? Yeah, well, there's a handful of things come to mind here, but without question, the issue is we don't know what physiologically great means. And we have extensive literature and science and data on ill health, on disease, and we need more. We need way more information. And that is always coaxed against general population. And as we are all very clear at this point, general population is not itself particularly healthy. Right. So we don't know what healthy physiology really is supposed to be. All we have is what do really sick people look like and then what do people who are not sick yet look like. And so for some markers, we're getting a little bit more information, but we really don't have big, huge data sets of what really, really optimal health looks like. Or if you don't like optimal, just better health. Right. How do I go from good to great? What's great mean? No idea. And until we get that locked in, we don't really know what we're aiming for. We're just trying to keep people out of being sick. And that is kind of going back to going, all right, um, you know, hey, you came to the, to the doctor and you got checked out and, and they say, all right, you know, you look, you're not sick. You don't have any of these clinical markers that would officially allow us to diagnose you with a disease. So you're doing good. Good job. But that is not even nearly the same thing as going, yo, what did I just say there? Like, go higher. So let's take the example of uh, a VO2 max because we gave this earlier. If you were a 40-year-old a individual and you went into your doctor and your doctor said, all right, we need to check your blood pressure. Um, we're going to you know, measure how high, tall you are and how much you weigh. And then we're going to put you on a VO2 max machine. Well, that would be abnormal, but that'd be great, right? Those other markers are not going to tell you much. Overall, the majority of time, you're going to do those other markers and they're going to go, well, you're not obese uh, or you're not morbidly obese and uh, your blood pressure is within range. You seem to be doing okay. Like seem to be doing okay is like the best we can get, right? Let's imagine they went nuts and put you on a VO2 max uh, test and, and metabolic card and got that. And your VO2 max came back as 35. They look at the chart and they say, all right, 35 milliliters per kilogram per minute for a 40 year old. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit average, below average. Great job, you're not sick yet. When look at the data, look what happens when you go from average. Let's, let's just make it worse. Let's take somebody who, who's from low not even like the lowest lowest, but just low and take them to below average. Like you can see 40% reductions in risk rate as, as high as that. If you go from the worst possible to below average, you cut your risk of death in half. So like there are monumental leaps we're making here going from like, yeah, you're okay. To like, you're looking pretty good. Not even like world-class elite, like up here. Like we're, we're just talking like then 20, 30, 40%. Like it's big chunks, right? But you would be told, like, oh, pretty good, you're average. That's great. Rather than going, hey, that's awesome, you're average. That's fantastic, really good. But here's how much it's going to benefit you going from average to above average. Right? Now, we're talking functionally, the difference between a VO2 max test of 35 and going to 38. Like, we're not talking about crazy, like, oh, sure, doc. Like, I wish I could put on 25 pounds of muscle. But, like, that's impossible. No, you're, you're talking about, like, fairly small changes in your actual results and capacity that has huge implications for your health. That seems like a paradigm shift that is um, 
seems like it's badly needed, but it's it's difficult to see how we get there. One hopes you would, but you know I've been talking to people and even just the request to get a general bloods done when you're a healthy individual, doctors yeah. are very reluctant to do it. They say, well, what's wrong? I just want to track it. Um, so it's interesting yeah. where that'll go. What does your gut say about, if not what great um, physiology is, what's the best physiology? Because like world records are broken every year. You got the heaviest lifts, the, the, the fastest runs. Are we reach, reaching the limit, you think? Or do you think with the knowledge that is being built in, you know, the a- academics now to do with sports science, is the limit actually a good few years away in the most extreme feats of sport? Well, I was a doctoral student in 2000 and uh, let's just say 10, about 2010. And I remember sitting in a room and there was a really interesting paper that got published. And it was by a guy named Mike Joyner. Mike Joyner is at the Mayo Clinic. Um, phenomenal exercise physiologist, scientist, and physician out there. And he published a paper basically called like the two-hour marathon. Is that even physiological hypothesis? I think the marathon record at the time was like two hours and 10 minutes or something like that. And the reason he published the paper is it was getting close. People were like, holy cow. Part of that, it was like 220 and stuff. People were like, we're 20 minutes away. You ain't going to shave... You know, because someone breaks a world record, they break two seconds. They break by three seconds, right? And you start thinking, like, how are you going to take 20 minutes off? Like, there's just no way. And then it started coming down, right? And that's like two thousand, two hours and 10 minutes. Oh, geez. And then he published a paper and he ran through calculation after calculation and said, like, is it even physiologically possible for a human, given the constraints we have with our, our body, to run a sub-two-hour marathon? And we'll just say, like, it wasn't generally accepted as possible, right? It was, ah, oh, okay, I'm... Uh, Maybe possible. And then some people said, no, it's not physiologically possible. Well, I don't know. What do we stand here 13 years later? And it's basically happened. The world record is now like two hours and like 30 seconds or something. We're, we're, I mean, they're, they're right there. It's just like any given day, the right little thing can happen. And, and that, it, it may be even closer to that. It's really exceptionally close to that two-hour marathon. So when you ask me, can that happen? Or are we at the limit? I think it'd be foolish to think we're at the limit. I mean, come on, like, we're still seeing these things happen. Um, now, is a chunk of that explained by technological advances in things like the track and the shoes? Yes, of course, of course, of course. Sure. Yeah, all those things are true. But you don't think we're making any progress? And the reason I can say that is we have yet to really crack the code that is going to be cracked, by the way, uh, of systems integration. What I mean by that is, again, right now it is pretty good precision with training and tracking and measuring. But that's not linked up to your blood work. Nobody knows what's going on there, right? Uh, That's not linked up to your digestive tract. That's not linked up to your mental state. It's not linked up to your respiratory rate. It's not linked up to how you're sleeping. It's not linked up to what's going on um, in any, uh, like your deeper physiology. Not linked up to, we don't have any measures of your nervous system. Um, Okay, HRV, things like that, but not direct, right? It's no, no peripheral nervous system. And then it's very hard. There are some programs that allow you to like pick a wearable from each of those areas and then see them on a dashboard. But like that's that that's just a visual thing. They're not actually same integration measurements there. And so when we can do that, and we're going to, by the way, very shortly, and then we can actually run simulations and figure out actually for you in this situation, we ran a million simulations and this is going to be the best combination of all these things. Your recovery strategy, your nutrition, your training, your blah, blah, blah. 
and it's an adaptive on your physiology, then, then we're going to see some stuff move. Um, so I, I think it's until that's happened, um, I think it's pretty silly to think like we're at the end of the line. Of course. Broader in science, there's this kind of idea that um, the low-hanging fruit of the 20th century is gone, whether that was in um, you know physics, we got to the moon, we found, uh, we described quantum physics, um, we're far off. And there's another part of that that says since 1970, we're actually after slowing pace, that um, we're in 1970 with smartphones is the way someone put it. And that because of the changing dynamics of the um, research field, that now in order to get funding, you need to get peer reviewed beforehand. So your um, colleagues might have to say, okay, we think that this deserves funding. But a man by the name of Donald Braben puts forth the idea that that's completely against how we know scientific breakthroughs come. That um, it's always the, the iconoclast, the guys that go against what everyone's saying and say, I think I'm actually right here. Do you think that the realm of sports science is, um, is victim to that mentality where there's some really great ideas, really great research topics that aren't getting the attention or research that they deserve for whatever reason. It depends on how nihilist you want to be here. Um, the reality of it is it depends on what country you're in as well. So sports science funding is different in America than it is in the UK. It's very different in Australia. Um, it's very different in Germany and Japan and China, for the record. So it depends on what country you're in and, and how those monies come. I, uh, speaking to the United States here, if you look at the National Institute of Health, this is the general place where most health-related research is getting funded from. So this is a state-run, government-run, giant pools of money. And this is where most scientists, whether you're in public health or sport technology, or it doesn't matter, biochemistry, biology, all of it is... And that's where you're going to get most of your funding from. Um, 20 years ago, a pretty large percentage of that funding went to people under the age of 35. Now it's less than 1%. So the ability to be under 35 years old and to get one of those grants is like basically zero, like almost legitimately zero, right? Um, what have you done? You, you've taken all of young scientists as this has said, you don't have to work for the first 20 years of your career with no funding. Well, how, how am I going to make any breakthrough? And then by the time I get to 40, it's like, well, then you apply for the funding and they look at your resume and they're like, well, you haven't done anything. So no, you're not going to get this funding. And we're like, well, great. How could I? I had no funding. <laughs> so there you go, right? Secondarily, sports science is, is minimally funded at all here federally. Like you're not going to get any reasonable amount of money for sports science whatsoever. You're not solving health and disease problems. And there's, look, there's probably decent rationale. What do I think I should be paying my tax dollars for? helping figure out a better cure for diabetes and cancer or helping somebody jump higher. Like, well, okay. I probably want the first one, right? Like, cause when it comes to me and it says, Hey, we don't have money for that research that you need to figure out your brain cancer treatment because we paid for that dude to squat, you know, 1200 pounds. Like, right. You can see the point here. So I actually don't think it's a problem for the most part. I don't think the government should be funding sport performance like that. Not at that level. It does fund some very, very little. So that it's a fair point. So where does it come from? Well, you have big programs in America like the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. So this is a, a giant um, several hundred million dollar program um, for sports science. But unless you've already been selected in that program, which has already been done many years ago, you don't get any of that funding. Okay, great, fine. But they've put that in. Um, you have things like the Motor Pack grant here again in America. I think that was 140 million uh, where they picked a handful of facilities across the country. That was a national program. That's that's physical activity, molecular transducers. So that's not sport performance. All right, great. So you're really kind of left in a hole. 
That said, there's a lot of incentives of private companies to figure this stuff out. Whether you're talking about a company like Nike or Gatorade, or you're talking about startups, technology companies. Um, I, I know of many of them that are privately funded or, or, or venture capital funded. And you enter now the Tesla situation, right? And so you're like, okay, great. You guys all think electric vehicles are stupid and a waste of money. You would have never gotten federal funding for that forever, right? Until he comes along with some private funding, figures it out. And now all of a sudden he's gotten hundreds of millions of dollars of federal grants because he like realized it was possible. And so is the, is the rate of innovation slower? I don't think so. Um, I think people say that when they're not behind the scenes. Like when you're behind the scenes, it's like, I don't know. I've seen billions of dollars go into it. Um, I've seen what DARPA is doing and I've seen what some of these other programs are doing. Um, I've seen what we use. I've seen what we built in my companies. Um, it's not there. It's not publicly available for the most part, but uh, there's some pretty fancy stuff that can be done with imaging, with digital twins, with um, with our blood work stuff, with our sleep stuff, with our brain stuff. Like, I don't know. We can do some pretty awesome stuff at this point. And um, it's just not publicly available yet. And uh, some of it is starting soon. I'm like mm -hmm. January, but nice. not right now. Well, when it does become publicly available, as you say, often things must be available privately first before the broader public can. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 unfortunate, but that's how it works, right? Like, how much was the first Tesla? 100 grand or something? 150 grand? I don't know, 200 grand? Something nuts and give them eight years and then all of a sudden they can make a $35,000 version. It's the same stuff. Like, all of our stuff's very expensive. It's available, though. Um. I don't want it to always be that expensive, but that's just the reality of how it starts. Um, like our bloodwork software, it'll be reasonably priced. It's been private for a long time and very, very expensive. And when it comes out in January at Vitality, it's it'll, it'll be very reasonably priced. It's the same thing with our, with our sleep tracking stuff too. Um, you're, you're talking multiple four-figure numbers uh, or five-figure numbers rather. And now it's going to be less than $1,000 for the most part. So it's still a lot of money for some people, but also like relative to where it's been for many years, it's pretty cheap. Absolutely. Last question, Dr. Andy Galpin. What would you say to athletes, to coaches who are coaches either dealing with the problem that their athletes are um, disenfranchising themselves from the ownership of their performance because of the... Um, the amount of data and metrics that are available today. You know, I didn't get the supplement in. Uh, I didn't sleep the full eight hours. Whether somebody is experiencing that individually, like they're throwing excuses at themselves, or to a coach who's dealing with it in the, the athletes they're training, what would you say to those people? Um, look, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a number of very highly successful athletes, um, Olympic gold medalists, world champions in many sports, MVPs, Cy Young winners, and again, in many sports. Um, here's here's what I can tell you. I have seen people who, uh, I'm trying to say this without giving it away, very strong potential to be world champions. And um, literally, you're talking about the song. They didn't play the right song on the way out to the thing. And like after the after losing we're literally like oh that the, they screwed my song up and you're like yo like at the same token i've been around some other ones who you're like you had you can't even imagine the disaster you're talking about um family members stealing things from them that they need in the competition night before competition like stuff like that right where you're like what they stole like yeah because they're mad and 
blah, 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 right? And you're like, and they went out and won the world championships. So yeah, like if you wanna if you wanna let the excuses go, like, and we all do, of course. You have every opportunity, but then also some of these people that win world championships, like they're just so convinced they're the best. And they just they're able to handle those tons of things out. So um you get the you get the choice in that matter, and and you know, I'll let you decide which one you'd rather be there. Absolutely. Dr. Andy Galton, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure, man. That was our conversation with Dr. Andy Galton. If you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.